Hello, this podcast about Lord Roberts, also known as Bob's, has been produced for Pod Academy by Tom Horn and Terence Christian of Love Archaeology. The little red-faced man, which is Bob's, rides the tallest horse he can, our Bob's. If it bucks or kicks or rears, he can sit for 20 years with a smile round both his ears. Can't you, Bob's? In this podcast, we're going to look a little bit at the life and career of Field Marshal Lord Frederick Roberts, popularly known as Bob's, born in uh, 1832 and died on the Western Front in 1914. Roberts won the Victoria Cross, um, as his son would go on to do in the Boer War in South Africa. He'd also be involved in the strategic defence of India. Uh, As a course of this, he campaigned successfully in Afghanistan. Later on, he also saved the British Army from disaster in South Africa before going on to introduce army reform and campaigning for national services. He was one of the few um, who recognised that Imperial Germany was going to be a threat to European and world peace. Before and after his death, Field Marshal Lord Roberts was uh, honoured with memorials in Glasgow, Calcutta and London. And also during his life, he was immortalised in poetry by none other than Rudyard Kipling. He also, being very much aware of the power of the press and the necessity to craft one's own image, um, he published an autobiography entitled 41 Years in India. When he died, visiting the troops in France in 1914, um, he lay in state in Westminster Hall, joining Winston Churchill as the only other non-royal to have this honour bestowed upon them in the 20th century. Thereafter, he was buried in St Paul's Cathedral in a ceremony that can only be likened to that of Lord Nelson a hundred years before. So who is this Lord Roberts, the person behind poems, memorials throughout the length of the former British Empire? And why is a figure who was buried by his king alongside the bodies of Wellington and Nelson been neglected in recent years? This is a darkness and light story of empire, fame, notoriety and charity. From hanging traitors in Afghanistan and using scorched earth tactics and even concentration camps during the Boer War in South Africa, to his family providing charity and opportunity for wounded veterans, Roberts, once paralleled with the Duke of Wellington himself, remains a compelling, if problematic, figure who won incredible victories, including a famous march in Kandahar, foresaw the Great War with Imperial Germany, carefully crafted his own legend in pursuit of recognition at home, and even interacted with figures as well known as Rudyard Kipling and Lord Kitchener, with whom he served in the Boer War. I'm Dr Tom Horn, archaeologist and online media editor for Love Archaeology. And I'm Dr Terence Christian, archaeologist, affiliated researcher with the University of Glasgow and Love Archaeology board member. Lord Roberts became our subject of long-term interest due to the proximity of his Glasgow statue. For many years, Lord Roberts' statue stood, nestled in a grove of trees outside my house. I would walk by him each day on my way to and from the Glasgow University Archaeology Department. His promise and anonymity, he seems to have won every honour available and fought in every 19th century colonial war, but without any sort of modern name recognition, made us wonder, who was this man of past importance? The conservation of his statue by Nicholas Boy's Stone Conservation and Glasgow City Council in 2014 and 2015 made us even more curious. In researching Roberts's incredible and varied life, which reads as though it is a boy's own adventure, we came across his biographer, Dr. Rodney Atwood. Dr. Atwood kindly spoke to us about Lord Roberts. After the interview, stay with us and we'll walk down to Lord Roberts' statue and discuss its aesthetics and place in Kelvin Grove Park landscape. Oh, hello, Rodney. It's uh, Tom Horn and Terence Christian here. Hello. We'll try this now. We've got a few questions, and we'll see if the, the audio works well. So, Yes, go ahead. Fortunately enough, the audio did work well. Over the course of the next hour, we asked Dr. Atwood a series of wide-ranging questions on Lord Roberts, on Bob's career and contemporary importance. First, however, we asked about his legacy in the modern world, as this is where we came into Lord Roberts' story. Who was this man with the magnificent equestrian statue, and one which had, in front of her eyes in 2014-2015, been so lovingly restored by Glasgow City Council? 
Nick Boy Stone Conservation and the War Memorials Trust. I would describe them as one of two or three um, outstanding Victorian, uh, late Victorian and Edwardian soldiers. Uh, his disadvantage in proving himself as a great general was that he lived in a time of European peace, uh, at least as far as Britain was concerned until 1914. Um, he defeated the Afghans, who were very difficult on their own ground, and his victory outside Kandahar in September 1880 ushered in 39 years of peace between Afghanistan and British India. That was a considerable achievement, considering how much trouble there was for Britain on the northwest frontier. Uh, he also, with brilliant strategic insight, turned the tide of war in South Africa in 1900. Uh, up till then, uh, in the, the, the campaign of late 1899, the British had done absolutely nothing. They had been outwitted and outfought at every turn. So as a fighting general, and he also won the Victoria Cross during the, the Indian Mutiny, as a fighting general, his reputation should stand high, but he was never tested in a major European war. So he doesn't reflect, um, you know, a great victory like um, Blenheim or Waterloo. Does he have a legacy today? Obviously, he's a very, he, for those who know his career, he's very forward-looking. So when he first gets to South Africa in um, February 1900, almost the first thing he does is to call a press conference. Now... That's an unusual thing for a Victorian general to do. The man whom he'd superseded, Buller, hated the press, despised the press, despite the fact he had a cousin with him, Bron Herbert, who was the leading correspondent with his army and whom he could have made good use. Today, if a general didn't arrive in a theater of war and call a press conference, he would be thought to be an idiot. So Roberts, in that respect, is, is very forward-looking. He's very forward-looking in his care of, and attention to his soldiers, to their morale, to their care and their welfare, extraordinarily so. And he enjoyed such a reputation that after his death, the Lord Roberts' workshops, um, which his daughter and wife set up, both daughters and his wife set up, come into their own um, at the end of the First World War, providing a place for disabled soldiers uh, to, to be employed and to make things. In the years just before 1914, and this is controversial in part, um, he predicted that the Germans would deliberately start a war. Uh, and he said Germany will strike when Germany's hour has struck, exactly when it would suit them. And we know from the researches of Fritz Fischer, his second of his two books, Krieg, Illusion and War of Illusions, that in December 1912, the German high command, naval and military met the Kaiser and came to the conclusion that a war, a preventive war, against possible encirclement in 18 months was ideal. 18 months takes you to the summer of 1914. Now, Robert said that Britain had to be ready, and he campaigned for national service. Britain was the only great power without a national service army. So he foresaw that this war would come. He feared it. He said we must be ready. Uh, and he also predicted, he's not alone in this, he predicted the way the Germans would come. In other words, around the French western flank, around through neutral Belgium. Uh, so those are all ways that I think he, he has a legacy. One must be careful because he was a man of his time. All his assumptions were those of his time, of a man who lived at the height of the British Empire. He loved India, but it was British India. Um, so he is, he is in some ways modern. In other ways, he's very much a man of his age. Speaking on that, because you've touched on some things that, uh, that we wanted to kind of expand on. So you're talking about his man of his time. Some have argued basically that Lord Roberts' actions uh, seen in a, in a present light would constitute war crimes. Uh, right. Well, these actions were public actions. They weren't in his private life, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're probably referring to the hanging uh, of Afghans outside Kabul for the murder of Louis Cavagnari. British envoy and his escort, yes, yep. and you're probably referring to the, the, the farm burning in South Africa and the uh, beginning of the camps, the, the, as they became called, the concentration camps. And for both of these, he's indeed responsible. Uh, the hanging of the Afghans, if I take that first, is something on which you won't find universal agreement. I've followed an historian, um, Brian Robson, who's no longer alive who 
favourable towards Roberts and what he does as a commander, as a tactician, as a leader of men, but is very critical of these hangings, and he says that um, men were not allowed, who were accused of being involved in the massacre, were not allowed to cross-examine witnesses, and so it wasn't even conducted in the best, best way with British justice. Not everyone agrees with me in following Robson. I've been criticised by people who've reviewed my, my first book on, on Roberts in saying this, that you know, he was actually trying to get at the men who had carried out what was essentially a crime against a, a diplomatic mission. And, of course, the Afghans didn't see it that way. They saw them as an, an occupying army, although there were only 70 of them. Um, so um, by modern standards, this would, I think, be seen as a war crime, but you can't always apply modern standards to the past. Roberts made a misjudgment. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He had seen terrible crimes carried out by the British in reprisal during the Indian mutiny. You know, men hanged willy-nilly from trees. You know, the, the, the march of certain British colonies was marked by trees festooned with hanging bodies. Um, Roberts was actually, by, by the records of others, rather, rather kinder than the average Britisher during the Indian mutiny. But he remembered that, and he remembered the sepoys being blown from the mouths of cannon after drumhead courts martial on parade squares. And so he was very surprised when there was such an outcry about the hangings of the Afghans, whom he thought to be treacherous, uh, to be murderous, and to be responsible for killing his friend Cavagnari and Cavagnari's escort. By modern standards, yes, he is very guilty. He made a mistake in another sense in that it enraged the Afghans. It didn't cow them. It made them angry. And he faced a crisis in December 1879 when they rose against him, probably with a force of about 8,000 in a fortified camp. He was attacked by perhaps as many as 50,000 Afghans. And that was partly because the Afghans were going to fight an invader anyway. But they were infuriated by what he had done. The South African War... Is, is slightly different because he's also he's fighting a white race here. And, of course, the Europeans are very conscious that dark-skinned races are different. Um, you know, the things you can do perhaps in Africa to black Africans is rather different from what you should do to the whites. And some of Roberts' own followers, Ian Hamilton, for example, felt that this farm burning was wrong. Firstly, one has to say that all the evidence assembled by Edward Spears in a collection of letters from Scottish soldiers shows that the Boers started the burning. They burned first. And the what was called the Colonial Division, the South Africans who were of English descent who were fighting on the British side in the South African War, were the ones who were eager to burn Boer farms in reprisal for their own farms being burnt. And when Roberts warned the Boers that if railways are attacked, if railway trains are attacked, he will burn the farms in the surrounding areas. Um, they are the ones who are keenest to do it. Roberts is, is responsible for that, but he draws back from it. He doesn't embark on it in the systematic way that Kitchener does, but he's pointed, pointed the way there. Uh, he's given Kitchener a, a policy that he can follow if he feels it's necessary. And he wouldn't have opposed what Kitchener did. Kitchener burned probably about 30,000 farms, or so just did. Um, the camps, again, slightly different history. They're, they're dubbed the Campos de Reconcentrado, concentration camps, by two radical MPs who were opposed to the war, one of them C.P. Scott, the famous um, radical editor of the Manchester Guardian. Uh, and that's, of course, from the Campos de Reconcentrado used by the Spanish in Cuba. And the camps were originally intended, as indeed were fortified camps in Malaya during the campaign there and elsewhere, to, to gather in the families, firstly to protect those who are siding with the British from reprisals, but more important to stop them being a support to the Boers, that every camp, every farm rather, could be um, a base for munitions, for horses, for ammunition, uh, for food, for support for the, from the, for the mobile commandos. And uh, that's how the camps start, but again, Roberts doesn't start them on a large scale. Um, he and Kitchener are in favor of it. Others, such as Ian Hamilton, are opposed. Milner, who is the High Commissioner in South Africa, the British um, civilian head, is also not very much in favor. Um, 
the real trouble with the camps comes when the system is extended under Kitchener, when he sweeps the belt clear of Boer families and he gathers, um, I think, over 100,000 Boers, men, women and children, especially women and children, into these camps. And some of them are very, very badly run. And there is a war crime here, but it's not a deliberate war crime. It's a war crime to incompetence, mismanagement, and to some degree neglect. Some of the camps are very badly run. Well over 20,000 Boers die. Um, some of enteric, as it was called, ty typhoid, which should have been foreseen, and some of measles, which cannot be foreseen in isolated populations. And the Boers were an isolated population living out on the belt. These diseases, like measles, are, are very virulent. And a lot of the children died from measles. That, that epidemic could not be foreseen. But the responsibility for it falls mainly at Kitchener's door. It's something which was seen as a crime by him fairly universally at the time. And St. John Broderick, who was the Secretary of State for War, had to defend these vigorously against attacks. It was a crime. It was actually rather effective in bringing the Boers the negotiating table. So moving on from that, we you know talking about you know the positive uh, aspects of Robert's career. To someone who maybe doesn't know so much, could you tell us a bit about his care for the ordinary soldier and then veterans and especially wounded veterans? Right. Well, I can't tell you a great deal about his care for the wounded veterans because we're talking really about the Lord Roberts's workshops, which reach full effect after his death. What I can say a bit more about is what he did during his time as, as Commander-in-Chief, both in India and in, in England after the South African War. In India, he campaigned endlessly for improvements for both the British and the Indian soldiers, and for pay rises, and for better barracks, and for more consistent food, and for better uniforms. And he was very conscious of the morale of uh, regiments depending upon good leadership and good care. And in his letters to the Duke of Cambridge, there's an example where he writes of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, and he talks about the number of small cases of indiscipline due to lack of care and lack of leadership. And to some extent, this indiscipline is a protest against that. And he says there cannot be in any battalion so many small-scale misdemeanors as there are in the Royal Scots Fusiliers. It would be a splendid battalion with a really good CO. And, he, and this is admitted in the regimental history. They're not quite in the way I've described it. Um, the CO gets the sack. Roberts replaces him with a CO who looks after it. And the crimes die away. So he's very conscious of morale, the, the, the link between welfare, care, and morale. Uh, at the beginning of the Second Afghan War, he commands a, one of the three columns uh, attacking Afghanistan, and Henry Hanna, who writes the history of the Second Afghan War, three-volume work in detail, and who doesn't like Roberts, because Roberts later on doesn't promote him, says Roberts's care for the hospitals and what we would call regimental aid posts for the, for the wounded and the sick is absolutely outstanding. He busies himself doing that. When he goes to South Africa, uh, almost the first thing he does after the press conference is to go around and visit all the hospitals and the mobile hospitals as well and to make sure that they are ready. Now, they're not ready. Um, sadly, they're not ready. And there are a series of, of epidemics. One of the most important is Bloemfontein when Roberts is there. This is because the British lose control of the water supply. The Boers cut it off to some extent too. Um, Roberts is to blame because he's eager to launch a, a counteroffensive, but to launch it in conditions of great secrecy because Kruger, the Boer leader, has spies everywhere, all over um, Cape Province and Natal. And so Roberts doesn't tell very many of his generals what's going to happen until the very last minute, and he doesn't tell his principal medical officer what's going to happen. So the medical corps is caught on the hop. Um, despite that, once conditions improve, or once, the, let's say, once the initial campaign is launched, conditions do improve, and Roberts is ceaseless in writing home for more nurses. It's been claimed in one of the books, Thomas Pakenham's book, The Boer War, that Roberts neglected the nurses. This is complete nonsense. He and his wife founded Indian Army Nursing, and he writes constantly home for more nurses. So he's very conscious of the need to care for the soldiers, even if he doesn't always achieve what he should. 
after the war, after the South African war, there were reforms of a sweeping nature in almost all aspects of the army. And of course, one of them was in the Royal Army Medical Corps, which got more resources, more manpower, better pay, a new system of promotions. Uh, and much of this is achieved when Roberts is commander-in-chief. Backtracking a bit to one of your earlier comments that dovetails nicely in with that, you spoke about his, uh, his speech, his quite famous speech, that he gave on his 80th birthday about the pending European aggression. And this is in 1912. And a lot of been said about it being likened to Churchill's 1930s call to arms. I think you even referenced it there. And that they, they received the same sort of kind of public backlash saying that this is alarmist aggression, it's unnecessary, and of Germany's, you know, might be blunt and, and rather uh, to the point, but, but they're not going to be militarily aggressive. Given that Roberts and Churchill are the only two non-royals to lie in state in Westminster in the 20th century, do you see any large-scale similarities between their characters, or are they completely different people, uh, military figures, politicians, etc.? Well, Roberts is primarily a general, and his whole career, of course, is spent in the army or associated with the army, and he's a field marshal at the end of his life. Field marshals never retire, um, but he is a very political political general. He's a very... Um, media, media conscious general. Those are representative of the British Empire at its apogee. Um, Roberts, of course, was a much older man than Churchill. Churchill is a young war correspondent. He visits Roberts, who's by then a famous general, when he's a boy. Uh, and Roberts takes him up in his cart. And Roberts is very impressed with Churchill, with his precocious nature. He's impressed with him in South Africa, where he's quite brave and, you know, the, the, the armored train was stopped and Roberts rescues some of the soldiers and tries to get the engine going again and then he's captured and he becomes a hero. Um, Churchill writes about Roberts in a very flattering way in his book. In his letters, he's ruder about him. Um, and I, Churchill is, is at that time, he's a young man on the make and he's seen very much as another version of his father, Randolph Churchill, who was also a, a ruthlessly ambitious, who was also a man on the make, and who died early, having risen like a firework and then fizzled out. And there was a, a strong feeling that perhaps Churchill, with all his talent, would do the same. Where, of course, they are so different is that Roberts dies in 1914. Churchill goes into the wilderness, uh, for quite a long time in the interwar years, and he's rescued by Herr Hitler. And, of course, it's only because of the war that Churchill then comes back out of the wilderness, is accepted into the Conservative cabinet. The Conservatives greatly mistrusted him because, of course, he'd left the Conservatives, joined the Liberals, they associated him with the Dardanelles. But then, of course, uh, his moment has come, his hour has come, you know, his finest hour. Um, and in 1940... Um, he is the saviour of his country at the most critical moment in her history. So there are parallels, but Churchill stands at the pinnacle of a tremendous war effort, the war effort of the British Empire, in the same way that Lloyd George did in 1917 and 1918. Um, the similarity is the one that you've said, that they are both Cassandra, they are both big voices crying in the wilderness, hoping to be heard, and for a time being ignored, and then afterwards being vindicated. The other thing we know, of course, about Churchill was that he was a master manipulator of the media, and that's something which, you know, not necessarily called a manipulator, but we discussed earlier about him being a media general, and I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about that. The media question is a complicated one. Um, in my biography, I explain how um, at the outset of the Second Afghan War, in, in the very early weeks of the war, an officer comes up the line to Rob, join Roberts' column invading Afghanistan and says, this newspaper man came to me and said, I'll pay you such and such to report on the war for me. Officers weren't supposed to report on the war, but they did widely then, a, a lot of them. But I won't pay you if you do any favors to Roberts, who's then a brevet lieutenant general, an acting lieutenant general. Um, I don't want, Roberts has done me down, I don't want to do him any favours. Now, I don't know how Roberts had done him down. He'd been called a Master General, which is essentially Chief of Staff to the Indian Army then. Um, but Roberts hears this, and right from the very beginning, he's very conscious of how the media can make or 
break a man's career. And he has uh, with him a reporter who criticizes his first victory, which is the victory at a precipitous mountain pass, the Paiwa Hotel. And Roberts leads a very daring flanking attack. And he comes within an ace of failing. Um, as always with battle, there's a degree of chance in what happens. But he wins a spectacular victory against the odds. He drives the Afghans from a prepared position uh, with plenty of artillery, plenty of guns, fortified position, and superior numbers. And he drives them from that position. It is the major victory of the first phase of the Afghan war. And the correspondent, a man called McPherson of the London Standard, criticizes Roberts. And he says, Roberts does this and Roberts does that. And then there's an occasion shortly afterwards in, in a remote valley where Roberts orders a cavalry charge and prisoners are taken. He's, he's accused by McPherson of ordering the cavalry to take no prisoners. And there's some truth in this, but it's because of the particular circumstances of his men being hugely outnumbered. Don't be burdened with prisoners, otherwise you won't be able to fight the ones still alive. Um, and then they do take prisoners in another action, and the prisoners try to escape, and the guards who are outnumbered shoot some of the prisoners. And he's accused by McPherson of deliberately ordering the shooting of prisoners. And Roberts is able to get the help of the um, adjutant general, and he gets rid of his correspondent. They simply withdraw his accreditation. And after that, Roberts is very, very careful about who is talking about his campaign, writing in his campaign for the press. And when he sets out on the second phase of the war, which is to go to Kabul to avenge the death of Cavagnari and his escort, and this, of course, leads to the hangings, um, he's got a man called Luther Vaughan with him, who's been specially sent by the Times and accredited by Lytton, the Viceroy, Roberts' boss, who has written a letter to Roberts saying, don't worry, Luther Vaughan will write up your campaign. And it's very interesting reading Luther Vaughan's letters because he said, I suppose Roberts was pleased that uh, somebody like me would make his campaign well known in the press. Well, indeed he was, you know, talk about being a little bit naive. And then uh, in the third phase of the war, when he makes his famous march, 300-mile march with 10,000 picked men from Kabul to Kandahar, he takes with him Luther Vaughan and he takes with him uh, an officer of the Gordon Highlanders, George White, who's actually at that stage serving with the Viceroy, but comes and joins his battalion, who's also been writing for the Times. And there's a lot of fun in other people's accounts of this because they say, well, earlier in the year, Donald Stewart, General Donald Stewart led a march. He went the other way, and he didn't have any correspondence, and no one heard about it. Now Roberts has gone from Kabul to Kandahar, and the press are all with him. And so his campaign is endlessly puffed. And there's quite a bit of truth in that, but it's also puffed for other reasons. He reversed the defeat. He ended the war on a high note. Um, you know, it was a spectacular achievement, whatever you may say. After that, he knows that he's got to woo the press, and he endlessly woos them, particularly in India. Um, there's an occasion where Rudyard Kipling, following a, a hostile editorial in a, in a newspaper, writes um, a naughty poem um, about Roberts, and he coins a nickname of Bob's, which has already, is already in circulation, but, but as with everything, the great game and so on, Kipling gives it a, an additional coinage, and his alternative nickname is Jobs. Now, a job in the Victorian era was a bit of favoritism, giving a chap a job when he didn't deserve it, and Roberts is getting a job for, for one of his staff officers, uh, with a, a special mission that's going to go to the Afghan frontier, and this poem is is hostile to Roberts. And Roberts immediately sees what has happened. He writes a furious letter about it to a friend. Um, he's absolutely furious with the editor, and lo and behold, an editorial appears in another newspaper, mysteriously, we don't know how, but it bears an uncanny resemblance to Roberts' letter to this friend defending himself. So he's very conscious of the way the press operates. And when he comes back from India in 1893, the Times is very much an admirer of Roberts because he is a great imperial hero. They share common ideals. They believe in the British Empire. And they write a, a very um, 
praising uh, article about Roberts returning as if he were a commander of Roman legions on an obscure frontier of the empire, returning to the center of the empire, um, mourned by his legions who, who he's, he's left in India, um, but uh, are not so well known in the center of the empire, that is London. Well, of course, with an editorial like this, read by everybody who counted, Robert Cruz is now extremely well known in London. And his memoirs appear in 1897, He's been asked by people, this is what he says, he's been asked by people to write his memoirs, and they're, they're brilliant memoirs, firstly in their timing. They come out in the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, at the beginning of the year. Um, secondly, in the story they tell, it's a very, very cheerful story. Roberts is the chevalier sans peur et sans reproche. He never complains about anybody. He's not doing down anybody. The, the whole atmosphere of the writing, the whole ethos of the writing is cheerful and enthusiastic. One of the reviews says, few young officers could have failed to want to serve under an officer like this. And, and actually, Roberts' young men feel exactly that way. And of course, thirdly, and brilliantly, under the guise of telling a wonderful adventure story of his life, Roberts is able to put all his views about the Indian Empire. Um, huge expectations are raised that he's going to be the new commander-in-chief of the British Army. He's going to reform the War Office. And there's a cartoon, I think, in Punch, um, or maybe it's advertising Monkey Brand's soup, where Roberts is storming up the, the steps to uh, the War Ministry in Whitehall, and uh, Monkey Brand's soup, the monkey is saying, clear it up, my lord. Um, but somebody else in a punch cartoon had somebody saying, you've had a tough time in South Africa, my lord, but it'll be even harder in the war office. And indeed, it is harder. And inevitably, he fails to achieve or to fulfill all the very high expectations. And there are great criticisms of Roberts. You know, they wait about 18 months, and then they begin to criticize uh, that he hasn't reformed sufficiently. And, but Roberts, again, doesn't miss a trick. He replies... Uh, with the letter signed Miles, Miles, of course, for soldier in Latin, to the Spectator, which again is a, is a, a periodical that's on his side, and he replies, setting out exactly what he's done. You say uh, that uh, he's obviously very conscious of his media uh, presence, and not that he tries to control it, but he's very conscious of what it can do for him or what it kind of damage if, if it goes unchecked. And obviously that's something that seems to carry through his later life and after his death uh, with his wife and daughter. There's, as far as we were able to tell, three of the same statue. There's the, the original Medan statue, 1894. There's the Glasgow subscription statue, unveiled 1916. And then there's the Horse Guards in London, 1924. Two of the three, the Glasgow and the, and the Medan Indian statues, show a freeze of his action following the retreating forces from Kabul towards Kandahar. Can you just describe the march to Kandahar and what sort of role this plays, not only in cementing his status as a, as a military and colonial general, but also uh, the role that Kandahar plays in his own personal ethos of how the military should be seen in the Victorian period? It appears that the Second Afghan War is going to end in a sort of compromise. Um, the British are, have occupied Kabul and Kandahar. They've occupied the mountain passes leading from India into Afghanistan. They can't be beaten in pitched battle, so it seems. But they can't persuade the Afghans to accept uh, people they want to run the country. And eventually, they light upon a man called Abdur Rahman, who is connected to the Emir's family in, in Kabul. You know, we might call them the royal family of Afghanistan. Uh, and he has been a pensioner of the Russians, so he's suspect in many ways. But he plays his cards very carefully. Um, and the British are prepared to have him as the emir if he will agree that they control his foreign policy, that he won't make any agreements with Russia or anyone else, and that the British will control his foreign policy. So this compromise has been worked out. And in the midst of this apparent solution to the impasse in the Second Afghan War, suddenly news, shocking news, arrives that one of Abdurrahman's rivals, a distant cousin, has defeated a British brigade near Kandahar at Maiwand. And it is one of the three catastrophic defeats which the Victorian army suffered during the reign of Queen Victoria. And it's clear, firstly, that if Abdurrahman is going to become a mayor, that his rival has got to be knocked out. And secondly, this defeat to the British Empire imperils their prestige, 
There's a huge stir all over the markets and markets and bazaars of India. British prestige alone demands that it should be um, avenged, that the defeat should be reversed. Um, the question is, where should the British troops come to administer this? And the obvious place to advance towards Kandahar is um, up through the Bolan Pass uh, from the south, from Baluchistan, where there are troops ready to advance. Um, Kandahar is 300 miles from Kabul through difficult country, and so it's not obvious that troops should go from Kabul to Kandahar. Roberts, because of the hangings, is in temporary disgrace, and he has been subordinated to his good friend Donald Stewart, who's now in command at Kabul with Roberts as number two. As soon as the news of the defeat arrives, Roberts and Stewart confer, and Roberts sends a telegram with, I presume, uh, Donald Stewart's permission to Shimla, to the headquarters of the Indian Army, and obviously to the Viceroy, saying, I can lead an elite force and we can avenge the defeat. Everything can be done, and beside my good friend Donald Stewart marched the other way, and I've got his chief of staff here, and he can help to orchestrate the march. And Lytton, as Viceroy, has now stepped down, and it's Lord Ripon, who was a critic of Roberts, a critic of the hangings. But he knows this is a crisis of the empire, and it's got to be put right, and he wants the best fighting general available. And he thinks that quite a lot of the Indian Army commanders are over women. So he says Roberts should go with 300 men, and he tells the commander-in-chief of the Indian Army to send a telegram to this effect. So the troops are gathered together, and Roberts and his officers go among the battalions, who are not at first eager for this enterprise at all. Uh, because they've been fighting in Afghanistan now for over two years. They're fed up with the place. They want to go home, get it over with. And they say, quick march, quick victory, and then we'll all go home and celebrate. And they build the spirit of the soldiers. They're not March 5th because they've been in garrison. But anyway, they, they're able to build up their spirit and to buoy them up. And uh, those soldiers who are unfit are weeded out. But funnily enough, uh, according to one of Roberts' biographers, several hundred men who were in hospital, who were eager for the fray, discharged themselves from hospital and rejoined their battalions. And the march uh, begins in, in August, and one of the officers writes that we've got to do 27 marches in 23 days, and if we do it, it will be something to write home about forever. And they set off. Um, the march really falls naturally into three, three phases, um, and at the end of the um, second phase, they get to a big fortress where there's a garrison of about 900 men, and there they have news that their approach has actually caused the siege of the British brigade at Kandahar to be lifted, and the Afghans have withdrawn not very far within hailing distance to a ridge of hills, and there's a, a fear at the moment that the Afghans might try and circle round, get behind them and advance on Kabul. So Roberts has got to be rather careful with his advance in, in the, the last days of, the, of this march, the last days of a march of 23 days, 300 miles. Um, Roberts has been very unwell. He's been ill. But as they approach Kandahar, Roberts is not going to come uh, to the rescue in his, this stretcher. And he climbs onto his famous grey horse of Onalel and leads his column in. The Afghans are on this, this ridge of hills nearby, and Roberts immediately takes command. The commanders of the garrison at Kandahar have been very, very lacking in enterprise, and Shimla, the commander-in-chief, intends that Roberts should take command. And he does straight away, and he prepares for an attack. Um, he gives his orders the next morning, 1st of September. It's a beautiful, clear day, and he chooses his usual flanking attack around one side of the ridge while he sends the Bombay garrison, who, who haven't been very effective in, in Kandahar, up um, to, to make a feint on the other flank. He has the best soldiers that the, the Indian Army can make available, Gurkhas, Sikhs, Highlanders, Punjabis. They're the, the best mixture of soldiers, and everybody in their letters are confident that if only the Afghans will stay and fight, they will. The Afghans do stay and fight. They make a mistake because they think that a reconnaissance in force the day before has been a British attack, which has failed. So they're confident they will win. 
in large part they're composed of Ghazis who are fanatics um, who have their place in paradise already for them. Um, others are men from the Harati regiments who have taunted all the other Afghans with not being able to beat the British. So there's a good chance the Afghans will stand and fight. The battle lasts several hours. It is a complete British victory. In the last phase, the, the, the leading brigades advance into the camp of the Afghans, and they discover there the tents are still pitched, the cooking pots are still hot, all the food is laid out for celebratory banquet. All the Afghan guns are captured, and the Afghans are so completely defeated that, as one officer said, it's almost the only occasion on which an Afghan army has not been able to carry away dead. They count 800 dead on the battlefield and bury them. The pursuing cavalry kill another 400. Roberts estimates 1,200 dead from that count and 1,200 wounded. And it is a striking victory. Um, and, of course, it is puffed all over the British Empire because they, Roberts has restored the reputation of British arms. Very, very important. And it is the making of his reputation. Ever after, it just doesn't look back after that. And um, just discussed 1914, talking about his appeal for optics, his visit to the Western Front, his death there, and this epic funeral, which is likened really only to Lord Nelson's. If you could um, just say a few words about that. Um, right, when the First World War broke out, uh, he was nearly 82. He was in his, his 82nd year. Uh, and he offered his services to Lord Kitchener, his former comrade in arms, who was then appointed Secretary of State for War, a brilliant coup by Asquith, because Kitchener rivaled Roberts as the great hero of the late Victorian Empire. Um, and by that, he was... He was uh, 15 years younger, 18 years younger, he was in full control of his faculties. So Roberts offered his services, but Kitchener said, well, you can be the colonel-in-chief of imperial forces arriving in Britain on their route to the Western Front. Roberts made this rather more than a sinecure. Being the sort of man he was, he went around endlessly visiting the Canadians, the Australians, the Indians especially, as they came to Britain. He saw regiments off when the Irish Guards, of which he was the first colonel, first regimental colonel, were prepared to go. He said, don't forget to fight hard. Remember, you're Irishman. I'm proud to be an Irishman. Um, when he saw the 3rd Cavalry Brigade off, he'd been a great man for saying that the cavalry should be armed with a good firearm and they should carry the short magazine Lee Enfield. He said, remember to keep your rifle sling, slung on your back and handy, ready for action. Um, he nearly broke down in tears when he saw the King's Royal Rifle Corps, his son's regiment, going off. He always remembered the death of his son in battle at Colenza, the, the end of so many hopes. He then travelled to the Western Front. He got permission from the War Office, and he got permission from Sir John French, who was enthusiastic for the effect that Roberts' presence would have on the morale of the soldiers. And he travelled around, according to Leo Emery, for the three happiest days of his life. He spoke to every Indian soldier he met. He got out of his car and spoke to them. He was then taken for a tour of the front, and he went up the Scherpenberg uh, near Messines, which is a ridge, and it was a very cold, wet, windy day, and he caught a chill, and the chill turned to pneumonia, and he, he died. There was universal lamenting, although they were in the midst of this terrible war, it was felt that his death really did mark the end of an epoch. He, he was a connection with, if you like, a vanished age. 1914, of course, had brought in a new age, the Times said to its public, a great shock of sorrow will be felt at the death of Field Marshal Lord Roberts, one of our most famous and best-loved soldiers, passes away in an hour of national trial for which he had unsparingly prepared himself. And Henry Rawlinson, who was commanding the 4th Corps in the Ypres Salient, um, up to his eyebrows in battle, he said, this is the saddest day of my life. Sir John French sent a, a, a wonderful letter to Lady Roberts. French and Roberts had not always been friends, but he said, uh, what an ideal death for such a wonderful soldier, uh, with the cheers, cheers of the men and the sound of the guns echoing in his ears. And this seems to have been the general feeling. Um, there's also the story of the Scottish Rifles, um, who were marching to the front singing popular songs, and suddenly this dispatch rider appeared, and he approached the colonel, halted, saluted, and said to the colonel, Lord Roberts has died. 
and the colonel's face uh, assumed this look of incredulity. You know, the skies had fallen in, and the word passed down the line, and the men lapsed into this gloomy silence. The death of Box was a terrible blow. Now, the army felt that way, there's no doubt about it, but of course the politicians didn't, because Roberts had been a controversial figure, and in the last days of peace, he'd been very much involved in the dispute over home rule. And he had been uh, with the Ulstermen and with Milner and others trying to oppose the last home rule bill. And so uh, there were grounds for them not to think he was um, the ideal figure that the army saw him as. But of course, this was a, a huge war. Britain was still relying on volunteers. And Roberts's life was so important, he belonged to the nation. He showed the way the path of duty led. And so he's lucky in some ways in his death, just as he's lucky in his life. He's always reputed to be a lucky general. So when his death is reported and it's announced in the, in the Houses of Parliament, those liberal politicians like Asquith, the Prime Minister, who have been against him, get up and salute him, you know, and say what a wonderful death and what a wonderful man he was. Um, and so to some extent, he owes this state funeral at St. Paul's to the particular circumstances of his death at the beginning of this great war, uh, to which, so far as they could see, there was no immediate end. And therefore, by celebrating his life, the country is calling upon its manhood to, to do the same thing. Everyone knows the great recruiting poster with Kitchener's pointing finger and his great moustache um, beckoning, you know, your country needs you. But there's another recruiting poster of this small red-faced, white-haired general, and underneath it says, he did his duty, now you do yours. So he's, he's fortunate in that respect. Clearly his, his funeral does serve a particular purpose. But there's no doubt that the public see Roberts in the way that they, they parade, uh, they, they line the route of the, of the procession, and then they go in to see the, the tomb, they go, they go past the tomb in the crypt, um, they see him as a personification of all the British values which they're beginning to try and hold on to now in the midst of war. You know, he loves his family, but he's patriotic, he's prepared to put duty before himself. He stands for the empire, he stands for Britain. Um, he's, he's become a, a symbol, as it were. Now, that's 1914, but of course, there's still all the other years of the war to go. It's a terrible, terrible war, probably the worst in our history, for Britain at least, although the Second World War is much worse globally. Um, by 1918, of course, Roberts, Kitchener, Sir John French, many of these others, the heroes of the Victorian Empire, are figures who have receded a little bit from um, public consciousness. And that's why perhaps he's not so well-known today as he might have been. People are thinking now, of course, about others. Haig, Allenby, uh, Rawlinson, who led the Fourth Army uh, in the Great Offensive in 1918. So while Kitchener is still known, because he's in some ways infamous for the concentration camps and chucking the Mahdi's body into the River Nile and so on, Roberts is only really important in the way I think I've described as the first of the media generals, perhaps, or one of the first two or three media generals, as a man who's important in his time. But he's more important to those who study and know about the Victorian army. We're speaking with Dr. Rodney Atwood, preeminent scholar on Field Marshal Lord Roberts and author of three books on his life and career, Roberts and Kitchener in South Africa, 1900-1902, the March in Kandahar, Roberts in Afghanistan, both by Pen and Sword Books, and the most recent one published in 2014, The Life of Field Marshal Lord Roberts uh, by Bloomberry. As you know from three books, um, a lot of meat on the bones of, of Lord Roberts is an interesting character that you can look at from many different angles and, and get quite a good caption of not only the Victorian period, but also the current situations that we see uh, globally. Um, these small Victorian wars are much more akin to what has been going on recently than the Great World Wars very unlikely we'll ever fight a mass industrial war against an enemy like Germany or Russia. So Tony Blair uh, went to Kabul first in 2001, and he had Roberts' autobiography under his arm and said he was much enjoyed reading it. Thanks again for your, your generosity of, of time and, uh, yeah, just, just being very friendly and, and kind with us when we stumble through this process. No, it's a huge pleasure and a privilege, really, to help you. And, uh, you know, I'm of that generation which barely understands these technical things. But obviously I'm 
must come to Glasgow, not just to see Lord Roberts' statue, but, I mean, there's such a wealth of things at Kelvin Grove to see. Yeah, Kelvin Grove as well, and at the officer training uh, corps, they've got his original notes for his 1913 speech, which um, uh, Dr. Tony Pollard at the Centre for Battlefield Archaeology here has had a look at, and I think he, he tweeted some photos about it last year, was it's, it? Yeah, it's rather endearing, because uh, it's the, the uh, inscription that's on the side of the, um, the statue in the Kelvin Grove uh, doesn't exist on the one in the Medan, uh, but it's the, the inscription is, uh, the, the quote is from his OTC speech, and there's great photos of his visit in 1913 as well. So, and and I think I think the fact that the restoration has been done with such care and attention, and just the other day they were reattaching uh, the the final uh, bits of the statue that had been stolen in the 1970s. Glasgow is quite quite a left wing city, but it still absolutely looks 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 after him um, very well. And I think everyone was very proud to that we've got the statue here. So. Yeah, no. Yeah, when you do come up, yes, we'll, we'll uh, go there and have a tour around, and then and then go for go for a pint afterwards. <laughs> Sounds good. It is running. Oh, yep. good. Okay. Well, what we're doing now is we're walking out to the Lord Roberts Memorial, which is situated in Kelvin Grove Park in the west end of Glasgow, um, which overlooks uh, University of Glasgow and the Kelvin Grove Art Galleries. Um, so we're just going to have a look at the memorial. And interestingly, it was land that already had a memorial to the Crimean War. Uh, I think Blue had some ordnance, some cannonballs and some cannon that I think were Russian. Yeah. I'm not Definitely. sure captured Russian guns. Um, so this site had been used before for a uh, military memorial, but uh, this is uh, somewhat grander in scale. So we're just coming up to it now and having a look at the vista, which is over the whole of Glasgow, and it can be seen for miles around. Originally, um, there were no trees in front of it, and some of them were cut down recently when it was restored at the end of uh, 2014. So it's looking as good as it has since uh, since the 1920s. In its basics, uh, it's an equestrian statue um, with actually an identical copy of this in Horse Guards off the Mall in uh, London. But the, the Glasgow example is like um, the third example, which was in... Uh, the Medan. The in, Medan. In India, yep. In uh, Calcutta. Calcutta, yep. yep. Which was removed after independence in 1947, and we believe we found where it was moved to, but... Uh, we need to do some more research on that, but we're fairly confident we know where it is. But this is the, the best complete surviving statue and probably one of the finest examples of an equestrian statue from the uh, uh, Edwardian period. So it's on, how would you describe the setting? Well, I mean, from a landscape setting, it's quite interesting because it's on quite kind of a high promontory. It's raised up over, over the park, kind of overlooking most of the West End. It's got really, really good views to Gilmore Hill campus, and it's quite kind of impressive. It's in this big, prominent position of authority within the landscape. Yeah, so describing the, the monument itself, it's on uh, a plinth which, uh, how high would you estimate that to be, Terence? Uh, probably about, uh, I don't know, 25 feet, something like that, about uh, just under 10 metres. But it's, it's, it's more than a life-size statue by, by, by far. I'd say it's what, about double or at least three times a, a life-size uh, statue. When you get up there, he's, he's absolutely massive. Yeah, I would say a factor um, to, to yeah. minimum. It's, it's, not, it's not him at, uh, at his elder twilight years. It's certainly him at his, at his height of uh, a military accomplishment. And, and Terence and I have actually had the privilege of being right to the top of it because, as uh, we referenced earlier, it was restored by um, several um, bodies, including Glasgow City Council and the uh, War Memorials Trust. Yep the end of uh, 2014 um, so it's in it's in beautiful condition at the moment it's a Holland's plinth which has uh, statues of war and uh, it's a victory isn't victory, it victory piece um, which have all been restored um, it also has a, a frieze in uh, bronze around the side of it which uh, shows various uh, episodes of uh, Lord Robert's life and um, the inscription on the side beneath one of the friezes describes him thus um, Field Marshal L. Roberts of Kandahar, Pretoria and Waterford, VC, KG, KP, GCB, OM, 
GCSI and GCIE. Now, we don't know what some of these are, but uh, I think the most important one, obviously, is the Victoria Cross. Interestingly, none of the guard are after that as well, so he's yeah. clearly standing. He, yes, I mean, he really was a superstar of, of the Victorian Edwardian period, and greatly admired by Roger Clipling and uh, buried in the ceremony, which was probably you could compare it to Lord Nelson's. Um, and that was in 19, 1914. And as it says here, um, born in India, 30th of September. 1832, died in France while on a visit to the troops engaged in the Great War, the 14th of November, 1914. Now I think we're going to look around the other side. Yeah, we're currently um, that that's, uh, that frieze of his uh, his his honours is uh, is the north side. So we'll move around to the uh, to the west side, which is where uh, Victory and Peace uh, are located on top of a ship's bow uh, that has um, Saint George slaying the dragon. It's missing on this one, but the uh, we know that there's uh, that exists uh, because the Medan, the the Indian equivalent to this um, still has it intact and there's this uh, contemporary photographs of that which which are allowing the uh, the restoration to proceed with uh, replacing that that bit of the of the statue so for me the most amazing thing about this uh this this western side um, is that you have uh, on the on the ship's bow. It's not only just uh, victory, but you have uh, kind of Lord Roberts's personal motto, which in, in Latin is, is virtue and valor, um, emblazoned on the side. But it's it's a small detail. You can't really make it out unless you get quite close to it, because uh, it is it is hidden. But it certainly speaks to uh, to the care that people put in when they were designing this. It, you know, no no space was left undecorated when they're trying to 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 put his legacy in, in bronze, um, and it certainly carries out there. And above Victory, we've got his favoured Indian troops. Um, where we were before, above his titles, were Scottish troops and, and Celts. But these are Indian troops of, of, of the group that uh, he was visiting in France when he died. Moving now towards the, uh, the south side, the, the opposing side to the, uh, the original honours and, and, and named section. It's the, the other inscription uh, that dedicates to military history um, and, and what he did for the nation um, as a field marshal. And you can see... Uh, on this side, um, actually, the, the areas that he was involved in. He was in the Indian Mutiny, um, Mbela, Abyssinia, Lushai, Afghanistan, Burma, and uh, South Africa. Um, and it also, very interestingly, contains um, the text in bronze of a speech that he made when he visited Glasgow on the 6th of May 1913. And uh, I think uh, Ryan uh, McNutt would uh, like to read that out. Quite an impressive speech. It's, uh, I seem to see the gleam in the near distance of the weapons and accoutrements of this army of the future, this citizen army, the water of these islands, and the pledge of the peace and of the continued greatness of this empire. And this is, again, an extract from his speech that he gave here in Glasgow on the 6th of May, 1913. And it kind of cements his legacy in this, his defender of the empire during his time in India and Afghanistan and Africa and defending the empire again with kind of impending um, problems with the opening of World War One. Yes, and he, he was one of those who recognised that the you know, future challenges, um, so this is him essentially warning about the, the threat from, from Germany. He did a series of speeches which was you know, going around Britain, which he was trying to you know, make this clear that this was something that was a, a threat. And he was also heavily involved in setting up um, citizens' rifle essentially sort of militias that he felt that people needed to be trained because he knew there was a European war looming. And that was, you know, he wasn't alone in this, but he certainly was one of the very vocal uh, proponents of preparing for a major European war um, or with a clash of empires with European-based powers. You know, it's, it's obviously classic equestrian uh, um, uh, sculptures. He's, he's meant to be on campaign in Afghanistan. There, there are there are paintings and photographs of him on campaign, and it's certainly taken from that. Um, likewise, the bridle on his horse, uh, when you get close to it, you can't see it from the ground. But when you get close, um, it does have the VR uh, uh, Royal Cipher uh, for Victoria. Um, and so it's, it's very clear that uh, even though you're not meant to see it, uh, all the details there, the, um, the bridal chains move, they're, they're articulated. Um, so it's, uh, it's, rather, it's rather impressive uh, for something that you'd never actually see. There's, there's you know, uh, folds in the, in the, uh, the blanket bale on the, on the back of the saddle. There's, there's uh, creases in the leather uh, of, the, um, of the saddle, um, all of which you can only see from above. Um, you know, when you're on top of quite literally sitting on the horse with him. Yeah. Um, so it's... Uh, and what strikes me as really quite wonderful is the fact that you have all these attention to detail, you have all the horse trappings and all the leather, you can see the wee buckles and, and all these sorts of uh, elements. What's really great is that you've got this wonderful mix of realism and 
classical mythology, I mean, the horse statue itself is being supported on this plinth uh, with these columns, and I mean, the decoration around the columns, you have uh, these wee serpented dragons, uh, and then of course on the western or east side of the monument you have um, uh, gods and goddess. It's also quite uh, nice, as Amanda was talking about there, about the, the mix of classical imagery and, uh, and kind of realism. Uh, as there's, there's above these marching soldiers um, a series of kind of cliffs and, and gateways and, and towns that you can see, and they're, they're meant to be representations of uh, the, the, the sieges that, uh, that Bob's laid um, in, in Afghanistan, um, but they're definitely not executed in a realistic way. They pick out the, the major uh, sort of emblems of, uh, of those cities, the gates, the towers, the, the mosque domes, things like that. Um, but they're they're only executed in a in a sort of uh, stylistic uh, um, manner. They're, they're certainly not copied as if they were taken from from any sort of detailed uh, photography from the campaigns, which does exist. Um, so it's it's a rather rather interesting mix of of realism and uh, and almost impressionistic outlooks. I suppose the point to finish off in you know as archaeologists, um, what fascinates us is the the, the text of the script that um, from the visit in May 1913 referenced earlier actually still survives in the Glasgow University's uh, OTC, the Officer Training Corps. Yeah, I think we're going to take refuge from the Glaswegian weather at the moment, leave, leave Bob's out here. The little red-faced man, which is Bob's, rides the tallest horse he can, our Bob's. If it bucks or kicks or rears, he can sit for 20 years with a smile round both his ears. Can't you, Bob's? <laughs> <laughs>